Hello and welcome to another episode of the NBCSports.com College Basketball Talk Podcast. It is Monday, January 7th. My name is Rob Doster. I have a fun conversation on the way for you today. I was joined by my colleague at NBC Sports, Travis Hines, to break down everything that happened this weekend for the Monday Overreactions Podcast. Uh, Travis is the Iowa State beat writer, so he was in attendance when Iowa State beat up on Kansas. He has an interesting perspective on that. Uh, we talk about Yudoka Azubuki being done for the year or what it means for the Big 12 race. We talk about Nevada's loss, and we talk about Michigan, Michigan State, Virginia, and Houston, and how good all of those teams were after big wins this weekend. We also hand out our midseason awards, Golden Globe style, because that's how we roll on this podcast. Before I get into it, got to make the usual ask. Please rate, please review, please subscribe to this podcast in any app that you listen to podcasts in. When you have an interaction with it, whether you're downloading it, whether you're subscribing to the podcast, whether you are rating or reviewing the podcast, it really does help. It helps us in the metrics. It helps us in the rankings. And when those things are better, my bosses are happy. When my bosses are happy, I'm happy. When I'm happy, you are getting a better show. So giving me five stars and saying nice things about me, it's only going to help you in the long run and make your day better. So anything you can do, I really do appreciate it. Now let's get into that conversation with Travis Hines. And now let me welcome on our resident Iowa State hater, since I am currently the resident Iowa State homer, one Travis Hines, the Iowa State beat writer for the Ames Tribune and a contributor to NBC Sports College basketball coverage. Travis, what is going on, man? How are you? I am excellent, man. How about you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. I think the last time that we had you on the pod, your daughter was about one month old. So why don't you fill me in on uh, what's happened with your child and, and your experiences of parenting. Is there anything different between uh, raising a one-month-old and a four-month-old that you found? Yeah, she, like just before we started this podcast, I had her laughing on my lap. So that was pretty cool because like she just started laughing probably in like the last two weeks and it went to a giggle and now it's like a, a full-on laugh. So like to get – I mean you, you think uh, you know all these cliches about parenting are so stupid and then your kid laughs at you and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I get this now. So yeah, that's that's where I'm at. I'm making my four month old laugh, which that's a good audience to have because I don't really realize how terrible, terrible my jokes are. Yes, it's amazing like the things that people will do to make a baby laugh too. It's always funny when you walk by somebody making ridiculous faces or ridiculous noises at a little baby like it's completely normal. Yeah, I found myself doing that in Target today, and I was like, wow. If anybody recognized me, I'm sure I'm gonna have like a half a dozen tweets like with a picture of me making weird faces at my four month old in the, the middle of like the, the peanut butter aisle. Here's the thing, man. You just got to embrace it. Like at this point, I don't even, I don't even try to hide it. Like if someone no. caught me a picture of that, I would be like, hell yeah, I'll make the best dad faces. I get all the kids to laugh at me. You just got to be proud of it. Yeah. There's, there's, you really have to lean into it. And I don't, I don't know how you wouldn't like eventually, like just because there's so much that goes into it. Like, like I live every moment of my day, just like trying to make my kid not scream. So like I, I will debase myself publicly with silly faces and noises without thinking twice about it. Is she, is she a crier? Not too bad. Like she's a, like if she's crying, it's cause she's hungry, tired or needs a diaper change. So it's like kind like of one of those three things. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We, we're not quite like on the same schedule, but it's the, the, the problems are the same. Yes, we were very lucky. Chase was not a crier at all, and he was a very good sleeper. I think at like maybe two and a half months, he started sleeping six hours through the night. And I mean, like thinking about it now, like getting just six hours of sleep is uh, not a lot. But at the time, it was like, wow, six full hours. I thought we were heaven. Yeah, we're maxing out at about four. So six sounds pretty good. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, man. Uh, Just wait until they turn three and uh, every three hours during the night, they start running into your room and, and trying to crawl into bed with you. That's where we're at right now. We're trying to teach Chase that it's uh, uh, it's cool for him to fall asleep by himself in his bedroom and then stay asleep by himself in his bedroom, even if he wakes up in the middle of the night. And that has been a a losing battle, but I think I'm starting to turn this franchise around. Like right before well, we just, recorded Just this- in time for uh, for baby number two, too, and start the whole thing over again. Exactly. But, I mean, you don't want to be dealing with both of those things at the same time. So we kind of like, we're like, well, deadline's here. We got to get this done. And you know, right before I actually started this podcast, I was sitting in, in my office for uh, 15 minutes just waiting to hear if he would actually come out again. And I just went up and checked on him. He was asleep. It's a dad win. I'm like, oh, I'm all fired up, man. I was in there. I was in there for five minutes after I read him a couple stories. Five. I mean, that's that's a career low. 
that's yeah that's basically like you're getting hours of your life back tonight that you weren't really thinking you know you would have available to you yeah but so now what I better have to way talk to, to you. do it's a podcast with me yeah late <laughs> Sunday night exactly all right so let's talk about that man you were obviously at the Iowa State Kansas game and I think that was one of the uh, I don't know if surprising is the right word, but that was one of the more eye-opening results of the weekend. So just kind of take me through, first and foremost, like your initial thoughts on how Iowa State played, whether or not you saw something like this coming. Was this Did this say more about Iowa State or Kansas? Like, give me all the takes. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you look at a game like this, usually you come down on one side. Like, was it Iowa State winning or was it Kansas losing? And I, I really do think we learned a lot about both teams, especially – uh, with the news coming late tonight about Yudoka Azabuke being out for the year with the wrist injury, but I think you got to start with Iowa State with the way that they played. You know they've they've done well throughout the year, but the question marks have been pretty big and pretty apparent because they played all in November without four contributors, and they played all in December without Lindell Wigginton and Solomon Young. So we really didn't know who they were when they you know. They were 11 and two, but their best win was in the first week against Missouri at home. And Missouri had just lost Jonte Porter for the year, you know. So that, that's your best win on the year. It's hard to get excited, but they had been playing well, so it looked like they might have something. But I thought they would have a good chance yesterday against Kansas. I did not see an absolute thumping coming uh, Kansas's way, but that's exactly what happened. And I mean, it's kind of wild. Like you look at Iowa State yesterday, what they did to Kansas. And the two guys that I think just about anybody you would ask, who are, who's Iowa State's two best players coming into the season? I think almost everybody, including Steve Prohm, would have said Lindell Wigginton and Cameron Lard. Both of those dudes came off the bench and played a combined 26 minutes. It was all these other guys. It was the transfers like Michael Jacobson and Marielle Shayok. It was the freshmen like Tyrese Halliburton and Taylor Horton Tucker and uh, you know the kind of the Swiss Army Knife and Nick Weiler-Babb that were able to get it done. Like Those guys – coming into the year, we're not expected to be at this level. And what what they did on Saturday, uh, that's a statement win. It's hard to look at it any other way, that these guys might not have the studs that are you know across the Big 12 and in some other conferences, you know, when you're looking at the top 10 teams. But they just kicked the crap out of Kansas, you know, very uh, consistently and thoroughly throughout that 40 minutes. So they, they have to be taken seriously uh, in the Big 12 as a contender. And I never would have really guessed that. You looked at their team last year to this year, you knew that the talent was upgrading. But nobody saw Tyrese Halliburton being the type of player that he's been. Nobody saw Marielle Shayok being the Big 12's leading scorer after scoring 20-plus points just once in his three-year career at Virginia. So it's pretty astounding to see how well they're playing. And I think at this point, you have to take him seriously and look at that as this is for real, that they're really this good um, and the the exciting thing I think is if you're Iowa State or if you're Steve Prohm is that at some point you got to think Wigginton and or Lard are going to get it together and really start contributing to the team and then you're really looking at being able uh, to take it up to another level. Um, but on the other sideline for Kansas, I would be very concerned if I was Bill Self and if I was a Kansas fan because you lose Azabuke and all of a sudden you look at that Kansas roster. And are you feeling that good about the talent level that the Jayhawks had? I mean, when we ranked Kansas number one in the preseason, you looked at that roster and you're like, wow, they got they got returners, they got five stars, they got a transfer in Diedrich Lawson that's going to be awesome. And Lawson has been awesome. But Dotson, Grimes have been okay. They haven't been great. They're not the stud freshmen uh, you know, that we're seeing at Duke or anything. Um, the Gerald Vick had some really nice games in November and December, but he was awful against Iowa State. And like you're, you're wondering if he's regressing to the type of player that he was last year, where he essentially got, you know, booted off the team more or less. And if they're not going to make shots, and if they're not going to get guard play, you know, with a, there's no Devonte Graham, there's no Frank Mason on this team, where you have an experienced badass guard that can take over games. You know, I think they're going to be in trouble. I don't know. You know, they're not going to crater. You know, I'm not. I don't think we're looking at the fifth best team in the Big Twelve. But when you when you're Kansas, you've won 14 straight league titles. You're the number one preseason team in the country. You know, the expectations are for you to be dominant and to be awesome. And I'm just looking at this roster and I'm looking at what I saw on Saturday, and I'm not sure that we're going to see that this season from Kansas. You know, they're going to be good. They're going to be a top four seed. 
but I, I'm just not seeing the elite team that I think we expected coming into the season. And without Azabuke, it's hard for me to really picture them getting there unless all of a sudden the freshman figure it out or Vic suddenly becomes um, a consistently great first team all Big 12 type player. I think, you know, just in terms of what Kansas um, is heading forward, we can get into that in a little bit, but I think it was almost as much. Uh, part of one the matchup without Yudoka Azubuki because all of a sudden Kansas kind of had to play small and they were forced to basically be what Iowa State is this year if that makes sense you play four sure. guards around a big guy and like when it comes down to it I, I kind of think that Iowa State might just have better players to fill that role and and part of the reason that I'm so high on this Iowa State team and and look Travis my mentions were filled with Iowa State fans saying nice things to me. All I night know anything about that. and all day, and that never happens to me. I never have Iowa State fans saying nice things to me on Twitter, and I had they were just flooding me with nice comments and, and friendly things and be like, "Oh, this is a great." I even had like three random Iowa State fans be like, "Yep, I am going to follow you now because of what you wrote about them." And uh, I th- I don't I, I didn't think that I was it was anything that was too crazy. Like I don't want to overreact to a team winning a home game in a building that has been so uh, created so many of these like home wins and home upsets that they call it Hilton magic. Like there's literally a name for the fact that, that Iowa state wins so many home games against higher ranked teams in that building. So I don't want to overreact to it too much, especially when it's coming against a shorthanded team. But here's the thing that I love about this group is that they are basically what positionless modern basketball is supposed to be. And has become, they have, they can play legitimately play four guys that can be the ball handler in a pick and roll, and all four of them can be guys that can also space the floor. Right when they have Shayok out there with Tyrese Halliburton, Nick Wellerbab, and Lindell Wigginton, all four of those guys can make threes. All four of those guys can be the initiate initiator in the ball screen, and all four of them are uh, good enough passers. Where I think they're all averaging at least two assists, and when you throw Taylor and uh, Horton Tucker in there. They have four guys that are averaging at least three assists a game this season, which is insane when you think about it. Like they basically have three point guards on the floor at all times. And that doesn't include Taylor Horton Tucker, and that doesn't include Marielle Shayok, who is the Big 12's leading scorer. And when you put those four guys out there, they're all big too, right? I think Lindell Wigginton is the smallest at like 6'2, 190 or whatever he is. Yep. But the other four guys, like Marielle Shayok is 6'6, Taylor Horton Tucker is 6'4. But he's 240 pounds with a seven foot one wingspan. Halliburton's six five with a plus wingspan. Nick Weiler Babb is six five. So you have all these guys that are one versatile defensively and switchable defensively, and like just in general, pretty good defenders when it comes down to it. And two, all of them can play different positions where you can go four around one offensively, and any one of them can be the initiator, and any one of them can be the floor spacer. It's a difficult team to to guard. Because all those guys are really, really good offensively. Like Tyrese Halliburton is going to end up being a first round pick. He might be one and done. Legitimately, he might be one. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not overhyping that. Like there are NBA scouts that are saying that he might be a first round pick this year. That has a lot to do with the fact that this is kind of a weaker draft. But when you're six five with that kind of wingspan, shooting forty eight percent from three or whatever it is, averaging four and a half assists, capable of, of handling the ball screen, and you can defend, like that is everything an NBA team is looking for. That is the prototype wing for modern positionless pace and space basketball. The stuff that he does, and they have like four of those dudes. Well, that's the thing. Like the, we're calling it a four guard lineup, but it's essentially a four wing lineup because all those guys, you know, you you walk down how big they all are. I mean they. They're, they're switching one through four. They don't really like, it's not like you get into a point guard uh, pick and roll and you're like, oh, well, you got to have that guy guarding the point guard. I mean, they're all basically the same guy and none of them are like locked down on ball defenders, but you put four guys that are all about six foot five with long wingspans that are athletic and rangy on the floor together. And that makes things really tough. They don't have to be great individually because they're really good together when you have that ability to switch and the ability to communicate and you know play passing lanes and just be in the way a lot as they are with their athleticism and their length I mean it's just it's kind of remarkable to see it all come together I mean Halliburton was their third highest rated recruit and like I think legitimately has first round buzz now as a as a one and done guy which is you know 
ridiculous when you look at the expectations that he had coming in. I mean, he said earlier this week when asked by reporters that he was getting questions from friends and family like into October about whether or not he was going to redshirt this year. And now we're seeing him pop up in first round mock drafts. It's pretty it's pretty ridiculous. And I think I'm sold that Iowa State's for real. I think if you wanted to be if you wanted to look at, OK, was this a mirage on Saturday? You would obviously note that Azabuke is out, but I don't know that that matters now that Azabuke is out for the rest of the year because they're never going to have to face him. And the other thing would be they went nine of 13 from three point range in the second half. And that's the thing, despite being, you know, the the four guard, the four wing offense, none of them are great three-point shooters other than Wigginton who only played 17 minutes so I don't think that the 9 of 13 is probably something you're going to see a lot from the from them this year but obviously they have it in them so we'll see because the other thing with Kansas too talking to some of the Kansas reporters like there was a question about what Kansas would look like without Azabuke if that would make them a little bit more interesting offensively because Lawson was basically rendered useless in his minutes with Azabuke and Lawson was not great against Iowa State. I think the bigger problem was Kansas's guards were not able to get him the ball. And, you know, so I, I don't know that Azabuke being gone is enough reason to doubt this Iowa State performance. I think, you know, you got to look at them as being very for real. I think what could come back to hurt them maybe is uh, some streaky three point shooting if those shots don't go in. Yeah, I mean, specifically I, on the road. I'm not ready to say that they're the best team in the Big 12, but I certainly think that they are legitimately like a top 15 team in the country this year. And if everything pans out and let's say like Wigginton hits the gear that he had at the end of last season and Cameron Lard comes back and is a guy I like Michael Jacobson has been really, really good this season. What's he at? He's averaging like 15 and seven or something like that. Like yeah. he's been really, really good. And if Cameron Lard gets to the point where he's effective enough to take minutes away. So you had a really good point in a tweet um, during the game. That was one of the things that I noticed and kind of, uh, registered mentally is that part of the reason Wigginton and Lard only played a combined 26 minutes was because the guys in front of them were playing so well. Like, why would you mess up with, with like what's what they're doing and how they're going and how they're playing to bring in these guys? It's, it's not like they're. It's not that. It's not that Wigginton isn't good or he isn't healthy or Lard isn't ready to play or Prom doesn't fully trust him or whatever that is. It's it's that the guys in front of them are playing so well. So if you get to the point where Wigginton and Lard start forcing their way into playing 25, 30 minutes, like that's where you get the ceiling from this Iowa State team. And I really do believe their ceiling this year is better than any of the teams that Fred Hoiberg has because I think they're just as good offensively, just as dangerous offensively, and they're actually going to be – I'm not going to – they're never going to be great on the defensive end because I just don't think that they have more than like two or three really, really good defenders. But – they're going to be good enough where um, I think that is kind of what the difference is going to end up being for them uh, moving forward. As far as Kansas is concerned, I think I would probably still call them the favorite um, to win the Big 12 regular season title. Uh, the, the Moving loss into the five now, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I think that they have enough talent to make it work. You know, like we're, we're talking about like how good are their guards or whatever it is. Marcus Garrett was a top 35 recruit. The Gerald Vick is a guy that we were talking about as like potentially the national player of the year in the first month of the season. Quentin Grimes looks like he's finally starting to put it together after losing his confidence uh, for the first six weeks of the season. David Dotson, um, you know, is a little bit turnover prone and he hasn't been shooting the ball as well as I thought he would. But he is a really like, – he's been really good in flashes, and you can see him kind of like learning and developing a little bit. And they also have Bill Self, and I'm just going to trust Bill Self will find a way uh, to figure something out because he has the talent. He has a guy that you can run everything through in Dedrick Lawson, and he spent the last two seasons uh, playing with four guards. So I'm going to chalk this one up to Kansas not having Udoka, preparing to play this game as if they were going to have Udoka, being forced to match up with a team that they didn't want to match up. Like they played, if you want to beat Iowa State and you're Kansas, I think that you have to play running the ball through Udoka and take advantage of the fact that they're smaller than you, pound them inside, pound the glass, all that. Took the, They're not going to be able to do that. Throw in the fact that you're also playing in Hilton Coliseum. Throw in the fact that, that Iowa State made like 27 threes in the second half, and this is what you get. So I think I would probably still lean towards Kansas being the favorite, even without Azabuki, but it's, it's definitely much more of a uh, – of a conversation piece at this one. And I think you also, where would you, so let me ask you this. I think that it's the top four teams in that league are Kansas, Iowa state, Texas tech, and Oklahoma in some order. How would you rank them? 
Uh, I think you got to put uh, if you're looking big picture. I think you still got to put Kansas first, just because they've won 14 in a row. And I'm, as important as anything is what you mentioned. It's Bill Self's the coach. It would probably be pretty foolish to bet against him right now. I would put Texas Tech two because I think Jarrett Culver is probably the best player in the league right now. Um, and obviously, I'll, I don't need to go into detail about Chris Beard because I'm sure you'll use this opportunity to do so. And I think I got Iowa State as a close third, like you know, two B maybe to. Texas Tech's 2A, and then Oklahoma, you know, not far behind in fourth. But to me, like, just their talent level is not quite to what those other three look like. But obviously, they're winning a ton of games um, and have, you know, one of the better resumes in the country. But that, that to me, is the top four. And, and the other thing, too, in the Big 12, like, TCU hasn't proved it yet, but that's a pretty good team there um, that you're going to be slotting fifth, and they're going to make things interesting, too. I mean, that's that's the thing for Kansas's problem is it's not like they just have to beat – out Iowa State or they just have to beat out Texas Tech. They've got to beat out three, four, five teams that are really going to make things difficult um, on the league. It's not like they have one contender. They've got three or four other teams that are going to be in the mix for that league title, um, I'm guessing, by uh, by mid-February. Yeah, and, I mean, but as long as they the, the defend their home court like they always do, and as long as we, they don't lose to someone dumb like Oklahoma State or a Baylor or something like that, they'll, I, I think they'll probably would get it done. I wouldn't put... I would have TCU as a pretty clear fifth until we find out if whether or not Jalen Fisher um, is ever going to be back to 100%. He didn't play on Saturday um, against Baylor, and I just I think they are a different basketball team when uh, he is on the floor. Like part of it is the is the toughness, the athleticism, the leadership, having another guy that can uh, be a creator and, and and someone that can operate in the ball screen and basically playing that two point guard look um, with Alex Ro- Alex Robinson is I think a difference maker. Uh, for that program as far as Texas Tech is concerned I would probably have them second still at this point although it's really close Um, I don't want to overreact to just seeing Iowa State play this well and say that I think they're better than Texas Tech when uh, I am a noted and devoted Chris Beard fanboy at this point so um, I'll, I'll wait and see before I make any definitive assertions on that but I don't think that you can argue one way or the other um, definitively. Like, I think that it's kind of a toss-up at this point. It's like one, two A, two B, and four, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, you've, you've got pretty good arguments on both sides, I think, between if you're trying to pick between Iowa State and Texas Tech. All right, so the other crazy thing that happened on Saturday night was Nevada, one of the four undefeated teams remaining in college basketball, and the one team that we thought was going to end up getting into – uh, the NCAA tournament potentially without a loss on their resume went into the pit, played New Mexico, and lost by 27 points to a team that was six and six against Division One competition. Had lost to New Mexico State by 35. Had lost at home to Penn. Had lost at home to Colorado. Had lost at home to North Texas. Like this had not been a good basketball team, and they just beat Nevada by 27 points. So I guess what my overreaction here is, Travis. Is Nevada still a top 15 team in your mind? Yeah, I'm not getting too bent out of shape about them losing this game. I think, you know, when I you know, went back and watched some of that game and read what you wrote about it, I agreed that, that's, that this team is, I don't think that they're fully engaged and locked in. And, you know, maybe that's disconcerting considering it's only early January. But when you've got the team coming back that they had and what they accomplished last year and you look at what they have in that league, like I, I think that their focus is going to wane. And at the end of the day, I think Musselman's still a good coach. And you look at that roster, that's still a wildly talented roster. Um, so like, are they playing like a top 15 team right now? I think you can argue that one way or the other. I think at the end of the day, they're going to be one of the 10 best teams in the country, assuming that they, they lock in in March and are playing close to their ceiling. Um, so I, I don't feel particularly worried if I'm Nevada. Now, if they drop a couple more games or another game potentially in that league, then maybe you got to start to wonder if they're ever going to figure it out and recapture uh, you know, what allowed them to have that March run last year. But at this point, I'm to me, this is kind of a mad. They play in a crappy league and weren't ready to play um, on a Saturday night. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a really valid point to make because uh, – Think about it like this, right? Like their three best players are all redshirt seniors who all kind of had their eye toward the NBA this offseason. Both the Martin twins uh, declared for the draft and went through the combine and found out that they probably needed to come back to school because they weren't going to get drafted. Uh, Jordan Caroline was never going to end up getting drafted. 
Um, so you're looking at a situation now where like these guys have done everything that they need to do in Nevada, right? They won the Mountain West title. They've won um, in the NCAA tournament. Like they're they're they probably don't even really want to be back in school. And we're now we're asking them to worry about like playing a Mountain West schedule that is really off the radar when they are a top ten team that was fourteen and zero that had listened to all this hype that had won at USC and beaten Arizona State on a neutral court and um, was getting all this hype. So like I totally understand how they can be in a situation where they're like not totally locked in. I mean, even the Golden State Warriors have spent like the last three NBA regular seasons like not giving a damn. Yeah, so like th- th- that's my thing. Like these guys aren't Gonzaga. It's not like they've done this for two decades now where like they know that they're going to have to over, you know, they're going to get their best basketball the first two months of the season and then just have to, you know, self-motivate through the rest of the winter. Like this is the first time they've had to do it. And I, I don't think it's surprising to see that, you know, they're reverting to the to the what you called the warrior syndrome there. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting that New Mexico did just get Carlton Bragg back, uh, get him eligible and that this like it, that's a team with more talent than being the 190th best team or whatever it was entering that day on Ken Palm. Like that that's a team that's probably uh, has enough talent on their roster to be a top 100 team on Ken Palm. The pit is always a tough place to uh, tough place to play. That doesn't excuse losing by 27 points, but it does kind of give them a reason. Does that make sense? Like it's not an excuse, but there is a reason why things like that happen. The one thing I would say is this though. So their schedule we thought was tough, but the way that everything is broken down, like it's really, there's a lot of nothing that matters on that schedule, right? So here are their top 100 wins that they've had so far. One is BYU at home. BYU is number 97 on Ken Palm right now. They won at Loyola Chicago, who is 68th on Ken Palm, but I'm not convinced is actually a top 75 team. And I'm sure that once they get into MVC play, that's going to go down. They won at USC, who is 91st on Ken Palm. USC plays in the Pac-12, and the Pac-12, all those numbers are going to go down once they start playing each other. Arizona State is not a top 50 team anymore. They beat them on a neutral, but they're not a top 50 team. Uh, They beat South Dakota State at home. South Dakota State is one of their best wins. They're Actually, their best win at this point in the season, the best team that they've played, is Utah State, who is 47th on Kempom. We're looking at a situation where, let's say that Nevada loses, uh, they lose at Utah State, right? And they lose at Fresno State. Both of those teams are top 65 teams in the country right now. Both of those teams are good enough to be in the conversation for an at-large bid at this point in the season. And let's say they lose one more random game to like, a Boise state or they lose to like San Diego state or something like that, who has an NBA player in Jalen McDaniels. Then they're heading into the mountain West tournament with four losses and no elite wins on their resume. St. Mary's last year entered selection Sunday with a 28 and five record. And they had a win at Gonzaga and all of their losses, except for a loss at home to Gonzaga came on the road or on neutral courts. And they didn't get into the NCAA tournament. Now, this is assuming a lot. Like, assuming that they'll lose four more, ga- uh, three more games in the regular season and then won't win the Mountain West tournament is assuming a lot for what is clearly the best team in that conference and what might is probably still a top-ten team in college basketball. But is that really out of the question? And if that happens, are we talking about Nevada potentially missing the NCAA tournament? Or am I getting way ahead of myself? I mean, I think you're getting ahead of yourself. But, I mean, it's not – like, that's a – plausible scenario if they lose those games i mean that's the thing like if the question will be for them like they get they have two paths either they they lock down and they figure out that they got to play or their talent just overwhelms the mountain west and you know i think we saw on saturday their talent is not going to just be able to overwhelm every team in that league so they're gonna have to figure it out i i tend to think that team like if that's not a wake-up call just i mean they just got destroyed by new mexico i would think that they would have enough pride to where that's a wake up call. But if it's not, then yeah, there's, there's a path. There's a scenario there where you're looking at what they could possibly do in that league. And I would not feel great about them, uh, going into selection Sunday, specifically considering I'm pretty sure I picked them to make the final four in just about every preseason prediction, uh, that I put together. The last thing I'll say on Nevada, and then we can move on is this. Uh, I had a conversation with Sam Bassini, um, last night about this Nevada team. And he, he's not, a buyer into how good they are. 
And I kind of disagree a little bit. I think that they are, their talent might be a little bit overrated just because I don't think they actually have any NBA players. I think they have a bunch of guys that are super old that are going to be longtime Euro players. And that's good. Like, the, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, everyone in their like rotation, except for Jordan Brown, is probably like legal to drink, which is crazy <laughs> to think about in this day That's and age in college basketball. But I, I, like, I'm just saying, like they're That's, old. That divides the old and the young. That like half of their roster might actually be able to legally rent a car. Like they have 23 and 24 year olds all over the place, and I think that their age matters a little bit more than what their actual talent level is. But I think that they are a team with as high of a ceiling as just about anybody because. They have dudes that can just take over the game, like three of them. Caleb Martin can take over a game and go for like 30 on any given night. Jordan Caroline can take over a game. Like two years ago against uh, New Mexico State, he had like 45 and 16 and nine assists or hit nine threes in a double overtime win where they came back from like 25 points. So he can absolutely take over a game. Cody Martin can absolutely take over a game. And when you have three guys that are that good, sometimes defenses just don't matter. Right, like part of what was so impressive about what they did in the NCAA tournament last year was they lit up a Cincinnati team that was like right there with Virginia as the best defense in college basketball, and they put like eighty on them. The Martin twins lit them up, and and those guys are good enough in one on one situations where they can basically beat any defense. And on the nights when they actually get it going, they're going to be able to play with anybody in the country. But that gives them a little bit of variability when it comes to what their like their their floor is in terms of how good they can be in terms of the teams that can beat them because on the nights when those guys aren't making their shots and when those one-on-one plays which are a little bit like lower efficiency and lower percentage aren't going down then all of a sudden you see things like what happened with new mexico does that make sense yeah and i mean to your point i think like at this day and age like we almost have to look at that experience and that age as a skill that teams have because I think it is so important and it's so underrated when you've got guys that are 22, 23, 24 and have played um, in these big games. Like to me, that's uh, we, we consistently underrate it because talent's a lot more fun to watch and talk about. But I, I think you have to look at it almost like a skill uh, for teams now. Certainly. And that's why it is like there are, there are metrics out there about how old a team is and the kind of continuity that they have on their roster. So there are three undefeated teams left in all of college basketball, Travis, there is Houston, who is 14-0. There is Virginia, who is 14-0. And there is Michigan, who is now 15-0. Of those three teams, who do you see lasting the longest uh, without a loss on their resume? Do you want me to read what their schedules are going to end up being? No, I got them pulled up. I mean, I'm looking like the first one that I think everybody will have to look at is Houston because just of the league that they play in. And I mean, you're looking at, you know, they might easily make it into February without a loss, depending on what you think about at Temple and at SMU. I'm gonna, I'll go with Houston. I mean, I think they're good. I don't think that they're like wildly talented, but uh, Kelvin Sampson, I think, has proved himself to be a difference maker on the sideline. And, you know, the the American just isn't that great, especially outside of the top, you know, two or three teams. Um, so I'll take Houston, I guess. Yeah. And for the record, Virginia's three of their next four games are going to be on the road. Uh, five of their next seven are on the road. The home game that they play in their next four is home against Virginia Tech, and they end that four-game run by going to Cameron Indoor Stadium on Saturday, January 19th in what could end up being a battle between the two best teams in college basketball. And I don't think that Virginia is going to get out of Cameron uh, with a win. Michigan is interesting because they don't really play a game that scares me all that much until February 24th when they – play Michigan State like two of their last four games are against Michigan State uh, but it feels like every team in the Big Ten is capable of beating anybody like it's just it's such a weird league this year and on Saturday the 19th they play at Wisconsin uh, next Friday or the Friday after that the 25th they play at Indiana they play um, Ohio State January 29th like these are all games that are, are definitely losable so um I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how all of that plays out. Gun to my head, I would probably pick uh, Michigan to last the longest. Um, I just, I don't know. I'm not necessarily a believer in Houston at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think like with Michigan, when you look at the Big Ten, like there's just a lot of good teams. And I think there's a couple great teams in that league. But like, I don't think Wisconsin's particularly great. But if they go and make threes, they're probably going to beat Michigan in Madison. Like they're 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 perfectly capable of that. Um, so I think like just the schedule is going to make things difficult for Michigan and like looking at Virginia's, I don't think there's any way they make it through 
that four game stretch without a loss. I mean, like they could go two and two and you'd still probably feel uh, pretty good about Virginia. I'd imagine given, you know, Clemson, Virginia tech Duke back to back to back. Like that's, that's a pretty tough three game stretch there. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because on Saturday, Virginia absolutely eviscerated a Florida state team that is ranked number ninth in the country. And look, if you were just checking box scores, you probably didn't think it was that bad because the final score was 65 to 52. But with two minutes left in the game, Virginia was up 29 points. They had given up in the first 38 minutes. The score was 65 to 36 by the time. like, And that was after they had had their scrubs on the court for two minutes. It was 65 to 36. They were up 29 points on the number nine team in the country. They just they just strangle you. I mean, like this this is the deal with Virginia too. Is I think it'll be in, really interesting to see how they're talked about and perceived by the college basketball public over the next two months because of what happened last year, because of what has happened in previous years in the NCAA tournament. Are like we to the point where no one really cares about what Virginia does until the NCAA tournament, given how much they've accomplished and how you know relatively poorly they've done in the NCAA tournament. I don't think people are going to care, and I don't think people are going to buy into Virginia until they see them uh, potentially in Minneapolis the last week in March. I've made this point on multiple podcasts, but nobody bought into Villanova until they won their first national title, right? Nobody Mm -hmm. bought into Gonzaga being for real until they made the final four. Nobody bought into Bill Self until he went out and won his national title. No one believed that UConn was really a great program until they won their national title. Same thing with like Lute Olsen at Arizona until he won his national title. I've always said that you are never, you're always the guy that can't win the big one until you finally win the big one. And I like, I'm from, for my money, like this is the year that Tony Bennett gets it done. Now, am I worried that some of that is, there's going to be some hangover that they're going to get into the tournament and they're going to be like, Oh my God, are we going to choke? Oh my God, are we going to choke? And, and you know, one little run can completely mess up their psyche. Sure. Like these, these kids are 19, 20, 21 years old, you know, like that happens to professional athletes all the time. They're, they're human beings. But I think that this is the year that they get them to get it done. I'm on record saying that this is the year that they get it done. I'm on record saying that this uh, could very well be the best team that we have ever seen in the Tony Bennett era. You know, they have two NBA players on that roster, and that doesn't even include Kyle Guy, who is their leading scorer, who put 21 points on Florida State, and who put 30 points on Marshall the day before that. So this is a very, very, very good basketball team with legitimate NBA players on the roster with three or four guys that can beat you on any given night that is just so happens to be, you know, as good as they've always been defensively. Yeah, I mean, I'm bought in. Like, I mean, I've been bought into Virginia for a while. I think, I mean, how many years do we need to see it where we, like, where the NCAA tournament is just at some point a, a random number generator where things can just go sideways on you? I mean, there's nothing keeping, there's nothing structural keeping Virginia out of the Final Four. They're obviously one of the best teams in the country, night in, night out. You just ran down the talent. I don't think anybody's co- uh, questioning if Tony Bennett can coach. So, I mean, to me at this point, it's just a waiting game. They're going to get there. And I don't know that there's any reason this year wouldn't be the year given um, you know, all the reasons we went through. But there's nothing structurally – there's no structural flaw in Virginia that's going to keep them from the Final Four. It's going to be do they have a bad night or does the team they're playing you know, go wild and hit 22 threes in a game or something crazy like that? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's probably what – There's probably not going to be 22 threes in a – or twenty. imagine a team getting that many possessions even. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but that – I mean, I already can see it happening. They're going to end up running into – Somebody like a, a five seed in the the Sweet 16 that has a dude go for like 47 points or something like that. They'll probably, you know what it'll probably end up being? They'll probably get Nevada. Nevada will drop to a five seed. They're going to end up getting Nevada, and Caleb Martin's going to end up scoring 45 points. I can already see it. That's already what's going to happen. He's going to be that- making ridiculous step-back shots with seven hands in his face, and then Virginia's going to end up losing, and we're going to have to have the same conversation over and over and over again. You actually bring up an interesting point, though, that I do want to talk about is how do you see – like, what do you think the narrative is going to be around them? What do you think the, the talking points are going to be? Do you think that we're going to be seeing headlines on, like, pardon my take or um, not uh, pardon the interruption that are more or less saying, like, can Virginia win at all? Is that going to be a talking point on around the horn? Like, are Stephen A. and Skip Bayless going to end up arguing about that at some point? Yeah, they're going to – their regular season is going to be dismissed as – Unless they go undefeated, like which I think both of us are in agreement is highly, highly unlikely. Unless they're in, 
un- undefeated going into February. Like they're whatever they do in the regular season is going to be dismissed and belittled and kind of pushed to the side because we've seen this from Virginia. We know they win a ton of games in the regular season. This is nothing new. Winning the ACC, like it's not surprising to see them win the ACC anymore or to see them be better than North Carolina or to be better than Duke. Um, you know that I think was surprising five six years ago. I mean that, that's not going to take anybody by surprise or be impressive, even if it objectively is. I just don't think people are going to care because they lost to UMBC last year because of all the other NCAA tournament losses. I don't think people are going – it's going to be – that's nice, but that's going to be the narrative, I think, you know, through the rest of the regular season for them. Fair or not, I think that's what we're going to see. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you put everything in this sport around a uh, one-and-done knockout tournament where – Anything can happen. If this was a seven-game series that they were playing every March, then I have no doubt that that Virginia already would have won a title or would at least have made a Final Four. But since it's not that, you know, Golden State loses the first game of series all the time. Like, that's not uncommon. And people don't freak out about it. But since Virginia loses the first game of a one-game series, all of a sudden it's a a disaster. And actually, you know what? It it brings me to another point, and it's a little bit off-topic, but – one of the criticisms that I've heard from from a couple coaches that I've spoken with is about how coverage of college basketball has reached a point where like we're basically just talking about like is that a good win? Oh, that's not a good win. Is that a resume win? That's not a resume win. Like, and I think that that's actually just a byproduct of what the NCAA tournament means for the sport. Like the NCAA tournament is the biggest thing for my money. It's the biggest sporting event this side of the Super Bowl. Right? Nothing can dominate a month the way that the NCAA tournament dominates a month in this sport or in any sport in this country. And I just kind of think like that's part of the reason that's what the national conversation is, is because that's what the national people care about. Like that's what the a ca- casual basketball fan cares about, whether or not this team's going to get into the tournament. Is that going to be a good win? You know, is, is this upset that Iowa state just got going to be good enough to get them like to a three seed. So they maybe have a uh, games that are going to be a little bit closer to Ames. Is this loss that Kansas state had going to cost them from getting into the NCAA tournament? Since we put everything into uh, building towards the NCAA tournament and the way the NCAA tournament is selected is not by where you are ranked or where you are seated or what your number is in the net rankings. It's based on what your resume is and how many good wins do you have, how many bad wins do you have. That's why this is – that's why it's gone this way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean that's actually something I think a lot about being a beat reporter at a small daily newspaper and then doing this as well. And I think it's – the nature of the way that the sport is consumed and the way that the media has gone. Like I think 30, 40 years ago, conference, the, the regular season was more important and at least its perception is because it was a more regional sport. People talked about their conferences because they could really only see the games their favorite team played on TV most of the time that, you know, their neighbors you know, alma mater. And I think the way that we've gone now, there's no regional media. You either have local media or you have national media. And, you know, so you're not, nobody's for the most part breaking down the PAC 12 race or even, you know, a little bit the ACC or the big 12, but it's all in the context of the NCAA tournament one, because of how big it is and how important it is, um, you know, because it crowns a national champion and because it's, you know, basically a, a national holiday, those first two, that Thursday and Friday, the NCAA tournament, but also because, you know, somebody in Tucson cares about watching Duke twice a week or somebody, you know, in California cares about watching Texas. And, you know, just there's it's a much more national sport now than it used to be. And I think the byproduct of that is people really only care. I mean, I think we see it in college football, too, like. Nobody's talking about who wins the Big Ten or who wins the SEC. It's who gets into the college football playoff and who wins a national title. And when that becomes a conversation, the the other achievements that you can have throughout a season, whether it's beating your rival or winning a regular season tournament or a regular season title or a conference tournament title, get devalued when they're less part of the conversation. That's why I've always said that I think that we need to put more of a priority on regular season championships. I would be – look, I love, love – the the championship week almost as much as I love like the first weekend of the NCAA tournament when you have all those tournament games all those conference tournaments all those small uh small mid-major league championship games with a trip to the NCAA tournament on the line like that stuff is great drama and it is great theater and it just absolutely murders the regular season in college basketball like it 
if we made it so that you could get an automatic bid to the tournament based off of winning a regular season title, like what's happens in, what's going on in the Ivy League, all of a sudden, every single one of those regular season games matters so much more. Now, I don't know if we can do that and completely get rid of the the, the moneymaker that is the, um, the conference tournaments and the theater that is the conference tournaments because I don't want to do that. So what if we had, if we're going to, so this is what my proposal is and it's totally off topic, but if we ever do end up expanding the NCAA tournament again, I think what we need to do is make it so that you get automatic bids for winning your regular season title and you get automatic bids for winning your conference tournament title. And if you win both, then you get a buy into whatever, like you don't have to end up in the first round of games on that Tuesday in the first four, the first eight, the first 24, whatever it would end up being. Yeah. I mean, I think like, the, the most interesting thing that I've heard is, you know, if eventually, like when the next round of conference realignment, if, you know, the, the top conferences peel off from the rest of the NCAA tournament, like then you could basically remake college basketball. And like, could you do regional tournaments? Could you totally restructure the way that the, the game is played? Probably not because there's too many money and interest. But it, it would be nice. I mean, even like going to a second semester sport only. I mean, like how terrible was trying to watch college basketball for those two weeks of finals? Um, you know, in December, you know, you, where you get no games, the, the sport drops off the face of the earth during bowl season and the NFL, um, you know, the last weeks of the NFL where like it just, there's so many self-inflicted wounds of, of college basketball. Like we, I was talking with somebody the other day about how goofy the big 10 playing those two games, uh, regular or the two conference games at late November, early December, but I sure as hell watched them. And I think that speaks to how bad non-conference November and December games are so like anything that makes that more interesting, more valuable, uh, raises the stakes on non-conference basketball. Like I'm, I'm in on yeah. even conference basketball. I'm in on like anything that raises the stakes, you know, to to these games that you otherwise wouldn't care about. I'm in on. And I think there's a lot of fixes, and I don't have a lot of confidence. I mean, look how badly the uh, the recruiting calendar just got screwed up. So I don't think that, and like nobody was really making any money off that in the NCAA. So like they're not doing anything to mess with things that already make them money. Yes, that is very true. It's an optimistic uh, way to end that conversation. Yes, it is. And uh, so you talked about the Big Ten. We're going to get this podcast back on track, and we're going to talk about Michigan and Michigan State, who both had statement wins uh, over the weekend. Michigan State went into Ohio State without Josh Lankford, and after trailing 43-36 to at the half, ended up winning by nine in Columbus. Cassius Winston was unbelievable in the second half. And then Michigan just had their typical grind-you-down beat you down. I think they ended up winning by, what is it, like 12 or 14 points against Indiana in Ann Arbor. Um, where do you stand on those two? Uh, are they clearly the top two teams of the Big Ten? Do you have a take on who was better than one of the other ones? I mean, I think there's not a question that they're the two best teams in the Big Ten. I, I would lean Michigan right now just because of how impressive um, they've been, and I think we've seen Michigan State be less so, but it wouldn't shock me if I'm, I would reverse myself when we get into February or March on those two teams because, I mean, for Michigan State to get back to the experience and age is a skill. I mean, they've obviously got that both on the floor and on the sideline with, with Tom Izzo. So, I mean, to me, there's not a lot of separation. I would lean towards Michigan right now just because the, the times that I've watched them, I've just been so – incredibly impressed with what they're doing and uh, to me michigan state's been a little bit more inconsistent in that department and again only when measured against michigan i think you know michigan state is clearly a top 10 team in the country but right right now i lean michigan uh, but I, i'm not my conviction on that lasting over the next two and a half months is not super strong yeah i would lead michigan i just think that they match up better with michigan state and um i, I think We've seen throughout history and throughout the years that they've gone up against each other that Xavier Simpson just manhandles Cassius Winston every time that Michigan plays Michigan State. So I just I think that Michigan's going to win. I would bet on them winning every time that they played Michigan State unless it is on Michigan State's home floor. So uh, I think I would lean Michigan personally. That they're just so good defensively, man. They just ground you down. And now they got Jordan Poole out here playing like he's. You know who he is? I love watching him play. He is the college version of Nick Young, where he just kind oh, of he, he just and I mean that as a compliment in that um, he's got this personality that makes you care about him, even if you don't really um, 
know all that much about him or, or care all that much about Michigan. He seems like a really likable dude. And like, he's just, he's a one-on-one scorer that has absolutely no conscience when it comes to shooting. And you know how much I love guys like that. Well, now, now I can only picture Jordan Poole in the infamous Swaggy P gif where he's got his hands up and the shot rims out. <laughs> That's all I can picture now. He needs, he absolutely needs one of those at some point this season. Is that the one where he turns around and like shimmies after he misses it, or is that Kemba Walker? No, he's got he's got his hands up like like the uh, the uh, the dude in Game of Thrones, essentially the the, <laughs> the the Walker, whatever, and the shot rims out in the back. Yeah, yeah, he definitely needs one of those. He'll probably get one at some point too. I would not put that past uh, past Jordan Poole. Um, all right, since it is Oscar season, and we have never done. Uh, we haven't gotten to our Golden Globe or our midseason award. Oh, man, I'm having a bad podcast. I'm having a worse night than Cody Parkey. Oh, boy. Yeah, that took a turn, huh? It did. Did it feel good to see another uh, one of your rivals miss a big kick and lose in the playoffs because of it? Man, like, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Travis is a Vikings now. fan. <laughs> Travis is a Vikings I'm, fan, to be clear, I, just so people know. Yeah, I'm I'm out on football. It's it's been a rough couple decades, like three of them for me as a Vikings fan. Like I don't I don't I have no feelings left. It does it does. The only team that I really feel good about when bad things happen to them is Green Bay. I'm I'm less interested in Chicago. They don't bother me as much. It's it's the Green Bay one. I don't know if that's just the proximity to growing up in Minneapolis or spending four years in school in Wisconsin, but like that's that's the one where I, I do enjoy when bad things happen. Yeah, my I've gotten to the point where my favorite football team is my fantasy team or whoever I bet on. That makes sense. I mean, so basically, your favorite football team is is making money. Yes, yes, and it was a it was a relatively successful. I came out with a with a small win in terms of all fantasy football stuff. I did not do as great in DFS as I normally do, but I did win two fantasy leagues, and that kind of helped uh, uh, balloon some of my. Um, Money that I shoveled out the door. I did have a good night tonight, too. How about this, Travis? Eagles and the under. And then at halftime, I took the live bet over and I middled it. It was a very good uh, Sunday evening. Get you. In the Doster household. Uh, but anyways, it's Golden Globe season, so let's talk about some midseason awards. Uh, we are going to do five of them. I don't know if they're all going to make any sense. We just kind of threw this together about an hour ago. I don't know your picks. You don't know my picks. So let's start with best director. Who do you have for the best director, the coach of the year? I want to go Tony Bennett right now because of like for all the reasons we talked about, I think that loss last year to UMBC really could have left a psychic scar on those players and on that program. And instead of lingering on it, it felt like they moved on incredibly quickly and now they're just out here dominating other teams and i think you got to give bennett a ton of credit for that not only for the job he's doing right now with that team but like what he's done to instill a culture that allowed that to kind of just to seamlessly move on um to this season and just keep doing what virginia does and that's win games but i do think like when when you asked me to put this together like there's there's a lot of coach of the year candidates right now but i'm yes, gonna lean to, to, to tony bennett at this moment so i think that tony bennett uh certainly is in the conversation i think there are three big 12 coaches in the conversation chris beard at texas tech steve prome at iowa state and long kruger at oklahoma um but none of them are my pick my pick <laughs> is John Beeline. I think yep. when you look at what uh, Michigan has done this season, considering the fact that they lost Mo Wagner, that they lost Duncan Robinson, and that they lost Muhammad Ali Abdul-Rahman, and you look at what they are now, John Teske's development, Jordan Poole's development, uh, just how good Xavier Simpson and Charles Matthews are, what that program has turned into on the defensive end when they were never, never known for being a defensive team. I think you got to go. I would lean John Beeline. I definitely think that that Tony Bennett. That's not a bad decision. Like I don't think it's wrong, but I think that it's for me. It's John Beeline. Yeah, man. And then like, what about K for getting? Obviously, they have the most talent of any team in the country. But for those freshmen to be as good as they are, as soon as they are, I think deserves talking about. Even though he'll never win it because that talent is so overwhelming. Or or Rick Barnes at Tennessee. Like for the way that they're playing right now. Like I just think there's a ton of guys that you can talk about. Uh, you know, being in the mix for this award, you know, here in the first week in January. 
Yeah, I mean, Coach K is never going to get it because he was the preseason nope. number one and or preseason top three or whatever it was, and he ended up being number one. But I, I mean, I I would not hate that decision. But I would probably personally lean. I, I don't even know if I'd give him ACC Coach of the Year. I think you got to give that to. I think I would probably give that to Tony Bennett. Um, it's a toss up though. There's a lot of good a lot of good nominees. Um, all right, so let's move on. Let's do uh, let's do best picture, the most entertaining team to watch for you. It's Duke. I mean, I think they're so much fun to watch. I mean, Zion is as entertaining of a player to watch that I can remember, you know, maybe since, you know, Kevin Durant is going to be the easy one to go back to. Um, you know, I just, for me, it's Jimmer. So, yeah. Well, so when was Jimmer? That was like 2011, 2010. Yeah, that was well after Durant. Yeah. So, I mean, Either way, like if you're in the conversation with those guys, you're a hell of, of a lot of fun to watch. So, I mean, to me, it's Duke, and it's a no-brainer, not just because of Zion, but because of the other freshmen. Um, I just think that they're so much fun to watch because they're so good, and they play so well together, um, like almost uncannily given how young they are and you know the fact that they've only been playing together for two months. Yeah, the, the thing that I love about that team is – like we all talk about the highlights and the dunks and and all of that stuff, but they're really like built around grind you down defensively, get steals, get fast breaks, kill you in transition. It's not like the kind of team where they're running beautiful offense because they're kind of not. But they get these runouts in transition, and you just know like at least once a game, Zion's going to have some kind of dunk or block that's going to go absolutely viral. They just got killers. Zion's a killer. Trey Jones is a killer. RJ Barrett's a killer. Like you get that many on a team and it's just like, to me, that's as entertaining and a fun of basketball to watch uh, as anything. When you've got guys that are, that play the way that they do. The only other team that I seriously considered for that award was Gonzaga, which should tell you what I think the best screenplay was this season or the best game that we've had. And that was Duke Gonzaga and Maui. Yeah, I'm gonna go with that one too. Not you were there, right? I, because I was there. Yeah, like that was that was as good a regular season game as I've been to, and probably top five, you know, regardless of you know regular season or NCAA tournament. Like I was there for Duke, Kansas last year in the Elite Eight, and like th- this game was right up there with that. I mean, it was so much fun. It was high level basketball going back and forth in a gym that holds like 2,500 people. Um, yeah, yeah, that that game to me, and it's not even close. I feel like that that was the best game of the year so far. Okay, this is kind of putting you on the spot, but what would be? I'm assuming you're including that, in it and you're going to include Duke Kansas from last season. Although, what else is like your top three games that you've ever been to live? Um, Iowa State came back to beat Oklahoma by 20 in the second half one time that I covered. Um, Iowa State, I mean, this is going to be Iowa State heavy because obviously those are the games I go to much uh, to the most. Beat North Carolina on a last-second layup in the second round of the NCAA tournament in 2014 after George Niang broke his foot. Um, and they beat Baylor in the championship game of the uh, Big 12 tournament, I want to say in 13 or – no, it would have been 15 when they were like down 17-2. to two. So Iowa State heavy, but uh, – they had some. They've had some good teams and some good games. Mine is very, very easy. Can you guess what it is? No. What? The 2016 national title. Chris Jenkins oh, hitting yeah. the buzzer beater. I was not there for that one, but that that, that was definitely uh, that's got to be a lot of people's number one. I would think. Yeah, that was. I've never experienced anything like that. And I remember literally my column after that game was just like that was the best basketball game that I've ever seen. I got it. I had no idea what else to write. Like what else? Do you, what else can you write off of a game like that? It's just when you get it's. I don't know if people listening at this point actually care, but like when you're in those big moments in those big games, sometimes it's really really difficult to figure out how you can write something that means anything based off of what you just watched, right? And it's overwhelming and intimidating when you watch that good of game to try to talk about it. And like, so I was sitting there and I was like frozen thinking about it, and I was like, well. That's the best game that I've ever watched, and it might be the best game that I've ever watched regardless of sport. So maybe I should just write about that. Like I literally went up to uh, to Jim Nance, and I sat there and I talked with him for 10 minutes, and that was the lead of my column was talking to Jim Nance about uh, whether or not that was the best Final Four that he's ever seen because it was the best Final Four game that I've ever seen. 
Yeah, Jenkins' shot is obviously the number one moment in that game, but I will never forget. Like the the second thing that comes to my mind about that game is just the the sheer confidence of the guy that pulled the trigger on the confetti cannon too. That, <laughs> yes, that, he knew it. That like like that dude just was like, "Yep, it's done," and boom, confetti comes down on Chris Jenkins after hitting that uh, that game winner. Like that took some serious confidence. Uh, in your uh, in your job there, yes. The, one of the moments that I'll never forget is um, is the bang from Jay Wright. Yep, like when the ball's in there, bang. Yeah. Uh, there was the, the obviously the shot that Marcus Page hit was ridiculous. The, the thing for me was the unicycle shot that he made. So where I was sitting was like the perfect angle. Like literally, I just from where Chris Jenkins shot it to where the basket was, the ball like that was the perfect angle so as soon as he shot it i knew it was good and like i have i literally have the video on my phone still that i got from that that the final play and after chris jenkins hit it he went sprinting around and i was sitting right in front of his mom remember how his mom was in the crowd yeah and he came over and went flying over the the scorers table and there was just the mob of villanova players and students and fans were literally right there five feet from me and i was watching like him and his mom um, hug and embrace, and there were tears, and that was actually a very, very cool moment to see up close. And and um, a, another one of those moments where it's like, holy shit, what the hell do I do with this? <laughs> yeah, you, you, there's a few of those. And clearly, what I did was take pictures of it and tweet them out, and, and talk to Jim Nance, and talk to Jim Nance. That's all I got. <laughs> uh, all right, so last two awards we got. Uh, let's start with the best supporting actor. And I kind of when I when I sent you this this these categories, I literally said I don't really know. So I left it up to you. Who's the best supporting well, actor? I, I wanted to hear where you went because I was like, I, I'm not going to even deal with this if Rob doesn't even know what he's looking for. Well, so what I went with was uh, Luke Yaklich, and the reason I went with that is because I think the reason that John Beeline is the National Coach of the Year is because of what their defense has turned into. Luke Yaklich is obviously their defensive coordinator. We've talked about all that, so uh, that's why I went with um, that award. But I honestly didn't – I just wanted to see what you came up with personally. How about – like I'll go with Brandon Clark for being awesome next to Rui Hachimura and keeping Gonzaga as awesome as they've been without Killian Tilly. Well, My only qualm with that is – I argue that Brandon Clark is better. That's probably what yeah, there you go. That's what I was going to say. My only qualm <laughs> is that I think I might make the argument that I would take Brandon Clark – um, over him, but yeah, I get it, man. That makes sense. See, I'm glad you went with that. Uh, all right, so let's end it with this best actor. And, and you know what? Before we actually talk about the real one, I don't know what the actually what the awards were. Like, I haven't checked Twitter or anything. But like, it's got to be Gaga and Bradley Cooper from A Star Is Born, right? I, dude, as we started this podcast, I have a four month old, so I have not seen any movies in so long. So <laughs> I have no, I have no idea. Like, I use my major in college was film. And so like that, that movies are my thing. And I have not seen a movie. Like I've seen one movie, I think in theater in the last year. And it was I, a quiet we, place. Was not a huge fan. We had a chance to go, uh, on like maybe a week ago. We, we convinced my, uh, mother and father-in-law, God bless them to take our dog and our son for the night. So we could get a date night. And like we, we went to dinner and then went to a movie because we're that awesome. Um, and we saw a star is born like four months late. But it's so it's it's unbelievable. Like I listened to the soundtrack over and over and over again since I saw that movie. I was I didn't like the ending. I'm not going to spoil it for you, um, but I kind of saw it coming. I didn't know it was a remake. Did you know it was a remake? Yeah, Chris Christopherson and uh, Barbara Barbara Streisand. Streisand. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I knew it existed. I, I think I, it was actually one from the 30s too. That like that was a remake. It's the fourth one. There's been four of them. Okay, gotcha. And I had absolutely no idea until I was like talking with my father-in-law about it when we picked up Chase. He's like, yeah, you should have seen the one with Barbara Streisand. I was like, what? This is a remake? I felt cheated, man. <laughs> that, that's too bad. I feel bad for you that you, uh, you you thought it was an original screenplay and here it was. Lady so. Gaga lied to me. If you can't trust Lady Gaga, who can you trust? I mean, she's. I'm going to make a really bad joke here, so I hope you're ready for it. But, I mean, everyone knows that she's got a great poker face, right? <laughs> yeah, got him. Those dad jokes are just flowing out of you. I know. I got, I got it. I got it. I'm locked in. All right. So your best actor is Zion Williamson, right? Absolutely. All right. We can wrap this up. Travis, okay. listen, man. I appreciate yeah, you coming on the pod. If you, I mean, if you, what, what else you got to say about him? Yeah, he's fun to watch. 
really good. I, mean, <laughs> I saw somebody, somebody. I just saw somebody tweet earlier tonight, like the numbers that he's putting up haven't been replicated since Durant. And so, I mean, like, let's not underestimate just how good he's been. Like, the dunks are awesome, but he's been like wildly productive. Well, here's the thing, and I, I looked this up before, and I haven't actually checked the guy's stats since then. But there's a player for Cal State Northridge named I, I don't even know if this is the right pronunciation, uh, Lamine Diani. And he's actually putting up like those numbers that haven't been put up since Durant are being put up by Lamina Diani in like even better than what uh, than what Zion Williamson. He's averaging twenty four points, eleven boards, two assists, two and a half blocks, and one point eight steals. Pretty good. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he is the uh, the Zion Williamson of the whack. <laughs> that that's something to hang your hat on. Do you know who his head coach is? I do not. Mark Gottfried. With Jim Herrick. And you wonder that's, how they got them. Hmm. Yeah, Scratch, quite the duo. Scratching the chin emoji. Hmm. That Will Smith gif, the French prince, where he's scratching his chin. There you go. When you're talking about what gifts are in a podcast, I think it's called Time to Call It. So, Travis, I appreciate the time, man. Yeah, have a good one. Thanks for listening. Follow me on Twitter. Give me five stars. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.